Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the podcast, I am so excited because an old friend is joining us and she has written an amazing book. Sarika Bansal, editor and writer of Tread Brightly. Welcome to the Whole Whale Podcast. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. And it's so nice to talk to you after so long. It feels like extra long because we were in different different worlds. We both uh, are now parents and are living across the world from each other now. Where are you recording this from? I am in Nairobi, Kenya right now. Um, so I think I'm 11 hours ahead of you. So literally across the world. Yeah, we're doing this may set a record. Um, we've had guests well, we've had some pretty far away guests, but this is uh, this is certainly up there. Uh, how are things going in Nairobi before we get too far into the book? Oh, it's lovely here. Um, the The weather is just generally really great and it's a lot of greenery. So I think especially during COVID, it's been nice that we've been able to spend most of our time outdoors. And um, yeah, I have a one-year-old daughter and she just loves to, you know, play in the dirt and get lots, get really messy. So it's really, it's been really lovely to be here. So your book, Tread Brightly, is a, first off, a beautifully made book and you'll have to go check it out. But this is like hardcover, wonderful photography, like laid out. It's as though you were in the magazine business and <laughs> created an incredible book here. Can you tell us a little bit about um, Bright Magazine and, and that work that um, you were doing prior to this book? Yeah, of course. Um, so I started getting into journalism. I'll go even further back a little bit with the idea that I wanted to tell stories about marginalized people and communities and tell them not in ways that was poverty porn or really just demoralizing or one-dimensional, but really tell solid, real stories about them. And when possible, to tell them in ways that were solutions-oriented. So, uh, so I worked at this, at this organization called the Solutions Journalism Network for a while, and then I got the opportunity to put these kinds of ideas to the test. Um, first at Medium, I created two social impact publications, and then I got some additional funding and turned them into my own nonprofit, which ran Bright Magazine. So Bright Magazine was formally set up in 2017, and, uh, and we published about 800 stories. We were able to win uh, four journalism awards during that time and uh, and just have a, have a big audience of people who were interested in international development, education, global health, gender, um, but really wanted to hear stories that felt a little bit more unique and that felt very human uh, human forward. So I closed the magazine in 2019, which we can talk about. And that's when I started really working in earnest on the book, as well as a few other projects. Gotcha. And, you know, I was following from afar and, you know, the magazine business combined with nonprofits. So I was like, well, that's just about the hardest overlap I could possibly imagine. Uh, however, you know, obviously you had been running for a number of years. 
Yeah, we definitely had a lot of people who were really excited by the concept of Bright because my my thing with it was just that I wanted it to be really beautiful and I wanted it to tell stories that were, as I said, really very human and solutions oriented and also just very accessible. Like, you know, didn't have all of the jargon that you often associate with stories in the nonprofit space or in the international development space. Um, so I think that we really appeal to a lot of people, including in the donor community, to be honest. And so that was really exciting for a while. Uh, I think that over time, it did become really difficult for exactly those reasons that both the journalism industry is has no real business model and uh, and also just running a nonprofit is really tough. And there aren't that many there aren't that many uh, foundations or donors that are really interested in storytelling and interested in this kind of storytelling. I found that when I would go to find to fundraise that I would talk to people and they would route me often to the communications department instead of their strategy departments. And of course those check sizes are smaller and then communications departments of course want to promote the mission of the foundation they're working at as, as opposed to really think strategically about the value of telling stories for larger audiences and doing journalism. Yeah. And so I think it was in 2019 uh, where you're at a certain point, you're just like, this, this isn't sustainable. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I was really afraid of it becoming a vanity project. I wanted it to be something that had its own legs. Like I, from the beginning, I really didn't want it to be personality led. Like it was just all about Sarka at all. You know, it was, it, it wasn't my show, you know, I have happened to be running it, but I, I wanted it to be about something that was just bigger than me. And I, I had a point of view and I wanted that to really just be the star. Um, when I started realizing that I was getting offers for smaller check sizes and people, they would say, oh yeah, no, I understand this is journalism. This isn't communication, but you know, it wouldn't hurt if you wrote a few stories about um, this topic in Uganda where we happen to have an office. And it's mm -hmm. like, uh, okay, well, I don't know where's the line, where's the line drawn exactly. Um, then I started realizing that if I wasn't going to be able to do it in a way that felt pure, then really what was the point? I didn't want to just prop it up for the sake of propping it up, which I've seen so many other people take that path and they don't seem happy with it. So yeah, so that was essentially my choice that I, I was just like, you know, if I can't, if I can't do this in like the best way possible, then, um, then I'm out. I think the other thing was just that I realized how tough it is to grow an audience organically. And, you know, there's so many things for people to look at. And I, like, we were really against doing these clickbaity type of things. Um, so, you know, we would find that we would do, we would publish an article, let's say it was about how there, there isn't good representation in photography and you don't have that many African photographers. And, you know, there's a lot of like white guys that'll come into Africa and take pictures. And, you know, we'd publish something like that and there'd be all these clicks, all these like outrage that would be generated. And then we'd be like, okay, great. And then we would go and find a photographer from Morocco and do a little retrospective on his work and do an interview with him. And that wouldn't get that many clicks. Um, so it just sort of started bothering me that I was like, you know, I don't want to keep doing this outrage, you know, clickbaity type stuff in order to grow an audience. And um, so I think that that side of it too is just has always eaten away at me that I, I want to just produce really 
good quality stuff and that doesn't necessarily translate always to having the most popular thing on the internet. Yeah, this game of exploiting the human emotional register in order to to get clicks and then having that as like this like imagine especially after reading parts of this this uh sounds like a a voice in your head saying like are you sure this is making a difference (laughs) and you're even you're like you're quick aside there a vanity project for like my personality and my like ego uh is an amazing amount of uh you know ability to look at yourself and say what what is happening here in this so that winds down and you say like wait a minute there's like one more project that you want to come out of this and i think i remember seeing this um i don't know what platform you used but you did crowdfunding right for this book we did yeah so it was actually it's so funny it started out as this tiny little project i had no idea what it took to create a book um, it is a very complicated industry is what I have learned, but, uh, but essentially we're like, what if we just put together some of our stories and, you know, print them and make it a book and we can use that as a crowdfunding thing. It was just a, like a team discussion and we're like, great, let's just put it up. And, you know, we just quickly cobbled together a video. Um, and yeah, so we used this, this, uh, platform, which was new at the time called I fund women, which was all women owned projects essentially. And our team was at the time was majority, actually the entire time that Bright existed was majority women. So it really fit the ethos. And the iPhone women team was also really excited to be doing a project from Kenya that was led by women of color. And uh, so, yeah, it was just a nice fit overall. Um, So, yeah, so we raised a bunch of money from that. I then realized it was after raising that money that I realized that, okay, Bright Magazine is not going to exist anymore, but I still want to continue with this project because I raised all this money for it. And I'm also very, very passionate about this idea about ethical travel and how you show up to a new place when you visit somewhere. And, uh, and then the idea of the book just kind of kept growing. So now the book is like, it's 17 essays and about a third of them were uh, published originally in the magazine and two thirds of them are our new material and we also, you know, hired lots of different photographers and illustrators to um, to really turn this into a bit of an experience, as opposed to just a bunch of essays plopped together on a piece of paper on a, you know, um, in a book. So that is essentially what the what the book is. Yeah. So to the book, I mean, first off, again, I have to say, it's I have gotten a lot of books. Uh, sent to us over here at the podcast and this thing showed up and I was like this has got beautiful layout and like great weight it's a hardcover book I'm like I haven't really touched a book in a while and I'm actually like most of the time I'm like I'm gonna audiobook it I'm like I really am not interested frankly in another thing of paper on a shelf but this um I- I'll say it again it- it's uh really a beautiful photo narrative even if you scan through it and then go into it so I'll, I'll park that for now and what I was expecting when this showed up, I was like, oh, tread brightly. And I know Circa has traveled like extensively and has gone through. I'm sure it's going to be like the Rick Steves of checklists for not being a jerk when you're traveling and like eco footprint lists. And it like, it is totally just not that, right? It's not some stupid blog post, no offense to great blog posts out there with like <laughs> 51 ways of making sure that you are not a, you know, white savior ruining the world with, uh, you know, pollution. Uh, it, it's not that. It's a collection, like you said, of essays and narratives in here. 
And I'm, I'm like wondering, as I read it, I have, I have a guess. I'm not going to say it. Who is your like audience for this? Who is that person that you like really had in your mind or your team had in mind when you wrote this? So I had a mentor who told me that if I ever wrote a book, that I should just pick one person that I'm writing it to and that it should almost be like I'm telling them the story. And the person I picked in this case, um, and this may sound a bit self-indulgent, but honestly, it was myself at 19 years old. Um, I feel like at 19 years old, I was this really super earnest person who had just discovered I, I was really big into AIDS them, uh, and I just wanted to travel the entire world and solve as many problems as I could and that was just my singular obsession um I realized quickly that I was not going to do that <laughs> and I had some really fortunate opportunities, really very formative ones. Like I went to, um, I went to Peru one summer in college and stayed with a host family and, you know, spoke pretty much all in Spanish for three months and really immersed myself there and got to do a research project in several clinics. I, um, I went to several, like several other very formative experiences and just got very quickly humbled. Um, also realized that trying to go and solve problems in places that you don't really know very well doesn't make any sense and that you should just show up as a human being. Um, I think I also learned that anything that that a lot of people think of as this is social good or this is social impact, that to another person from another vantage point, it's just a job. And that that dichotomy just has always really sat with me very deeply. Um, and just, I think the importance of just showing up with an open mind and a, a willingness to understand that the way that you think things are done is not always necessarily like there's not, it's not always necessarily the right way, quote unquote. And it's also just also just not necessarily the only way. Um, and so I think that just traveling the world and getting to, to sit with people and just spend a lot of time with folks um, just kind of gave me that humility and gave me that, that semblance of, okay, to be just a responsible person in the world. Like I, I just want to just make my contribution, but I don't want to solve anything for, for anyone. I'm not, people don't need saving. Um, they just often, you know, need a friend or just need someone to, to sit with them and talk with them and to tell their story. And I mean, that became how I decided I wanted to contribute into the world. I am so happy with myself because I was like, this needs to be in the backpack of anybody in college or just recently graduating who's about to like go yeah. save the world yeah, with one sort of like self-indulgent act mm -hmm. of volunteering at a time. And I like, I mean, I'm going to get another one and I'm going to have it on the shelf for, uh, for my kids when they come of age and they're like, I want to go to so-and-so and save the, I'm going to stop you right there, right? I'm going to stop you right there. As soon as you were the, use the word save, and you have this interesting note of how um, in Iberia, where you like walked into um, an orphanage and you talk really well about this topic, but saying like they have a volunteer industry there that it's not just here to like uh, show up and like, no, we expect you to donate. And there's a, whole massive industry, like a $2 billion, I yeah. think is what I recall, yeah. industry around volunteerism. And you then dive into like 
the questions of whether or not somebody who's like coming and going for one week is really great for a young child to form a relationship with. And then the, it just, the point comes back to, this is not a checklist. You can't just easily make sure that you are ethical by following these 51 rules of the road. It is a narrative and you bring that narrative out and those considerations out of looking at your place of power and privilege. The fact that we're shipping a lot more young white folks that kind of look like me out there and how many, you know, folks from Iberia do I notice volunteering over in San Francisco? Not, not very many. They're not very many. So what does that mean? And you're like, you're exploring all of these points um, in a sensitive way that maybe I don't think I would, I would just like yell at like, do you understand how selfish this shit is that you're doing? But you have a much better tone <laughs> and approach of saying like, how do we examine this? Yeah, well, so I think that goes back to like what I was saying. I was so upset about with Bright that, you know, this outrage journalism, this like faux, really faux outrage that's generated is what's popular. Um, and that's just not, I don't think that actually changes anyone's mind. Like um, it just, mm. or if it does, in the case of like volunteerism type of stuff that really, there's so many memes out there. Um, there's like the third world kid um, who's just kind of like looking up, like really, he, you, <laughs> I don't know if you know which, which one I'm talking about, but, um, but there's a bunch of them and they're all that same kind of tone, just like, oh, you know, you dumb white person, what do you think you're doing? And I think the only people, unfortunately, that that's going to have an impact on are the ones who would go and be very, very sensitive um, when they would go somewhere. Um, I think that the ones who are just brazen and don't really care, they're not going to be affected by it. And they're just going to go ahead and do whatever the hell they want to do anyway. And so I feel like that the, a much, to me, a better approach is to not tell someone not to go, but just to give them questions to ask themselves and to encourage them to be intentional with if they're showing up in a place that's very different from where they're from and that they don't really have much background and, you know, they don't necessarily have that many hard skills to offer that who just ask yourself this question, like, who are you going for? What, and what do you think, what impact do you think you can have? And just be really honest with that. And I also just, I don't think there's anything wrong with, especially those trips when you're 19 years old and just figuring out who you are to just go for yourself. Like that's fine. You know, just as long as you're honest with yourself, I, I feel like with the with volunteerism, there's um, what I come to in the essay is um, I, I think so much of it is just about how you show up and in and if you can just show up with this quality of humility and with this mindset of I'm not here to solve people's problems, but I'm here to just be an apprentice and to just soak in as much as I can and um, and use this as a learning experience and as a jumping off point to my future career, then if you use, if you just go in with that mindset, that already changes the frame so much of how you're going to approach a place and, uh, and the way that you're going to interact with people. I like that framing too, because clearly if you, if you draw this to a rigid ethical and frankly, environmental end game, you should not travel. You simply should not travel. 8% yeah. of all of the carbon shoved up there into this good world is because of our travel industry. So where does that leave you? You should stay in your bubble, in your box, and, and remain there. And that's 
what I liked is like, it, it, it's not that. This is a narrative of travel, its trade-offs, and how you leave space for the ethical environmental nuance. And nuance is the big word there. You're like, oh, wow. You know, like, you're going to go do that. You shouldn't do that. But acknowledge how that comes off and like, don't end up on the front page of, what is it, humanitarians on Instagram? Uh, or on Tinder. <laughs> on Tinder, be like, let me get my photo with the indigenous folks to serve as the backdrop for my self-exploration. Now love me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's another thing that, you know, that we have another essay in the book um, called the third world is not your classroom that really asks that, you know, if you're going with the intention of learning, then who's teaching and what are they giving up in order to teach you? And especially if it's not their job, then what are you expecting from them? Yeah. And the piece that you kind of explore a little in, in your essay, and there's so many essays in here, you go mm-hmm. get the book as a reminder. It's called Tread Brightly. As a reminder, you talk about also saying like, you know, where does that, that money flow? And anyone who's at a nonprofit knows that volunteer programs are not free. They're not sort of like, oh, run yourself, show up a bunch of untrained, disorganized folks and work with Mind you, <laughs> potentially at-risk communities, nuance of social dynamics that you have no manner of cultural understanding for, wander around and go to work. It's, um, and as you say in there, like you were surprised at first. You're like, you expect us to, to donate? Yeah. I think anyone, I would yeah. say, expecting to like show up and be like, finally, an extra pair of hands that you can put to work. Like you have, you are living so inside your own bubble that, you know, you you have to get outside and realize that like as an organization, I think this audience is actually a bit more savvy to that point. Um, yeah, there there is a a pay for that experience. You are getting an experience. Yeah, you're delivering totally. work. There's no way what you delivered uh, pays for itself. I know you think you are the center, bright, shiny, you know, moment of this universe that can produce incredible value for people. But I, I like the way that you carefully frame that. <laughs> yeah. And I'll also say just to add on to that is from the companies and a lot of them are for-profit companies. Um, I learned also that some of them, some of these volunteer experiences, they are for-profit companies that buy .org addresses so that people think that they're nonprofit organizations that they're spending money on. Um, but that if you think about it, like, you know, I pay $2,000 to this organization to go to um, Guatemala for two weeks to build a house. Um, The end beneficiary for that organization is you, the volunteer, not the people who are getting the house, not that community. And the people who that that company want to make happy are the volunteers. So the whole thing isn't like the, the community where the work is actually happening is just where it's happening, but that's not where the money is flowing from or to. So they're just not even part of that financial equation. But let me flip it around. It's a $2 billion business. There are people that want to travel, but also want to give back. There is, you know, there's an inevitable opportunity. Um, nah, not opportunity. I would say opportunity to create something that is good out there. You do mention some groups that are doing it in the right mm-hmm. way, but you really have to, it seems like do your homework when when you're looking at this industry and, and really understand that if if you've gone there to paint the outside of a school with indoor paint and it washes off, have you done a good thing or not? Probably not. And yeah, I I um I guess would you ever start a volunteerism company? Ooh, 
I don't think it's in my future. I, I feel like if I were to, there would probably be, it would probably be much more focused on um, international education. The problem is that I think a lot of people want that experience. You know, they want that experience of going and saving the baby. Um, there was this amazing article that actually one of my mentors, Tina Rosenberg, wrote that I read in, um, while I was researching this story about, I forget where it takes place. It may have actually been in Guatemala that um, that people can go for like a baby saving experience and then they could go and and physically like rescue a baby. Um, it's very, it, like the whole thing is really odd. Ooh. And, um, but there's people who want that. Um, so, so I think that the, the problem is that I feel like those people are always going to continue to exist um, until we change just like bigger narratives and the people who would be drawn to a volunteer, a volunteerism experience that I may create would be not the people who would be like, okay, fine. I can do this like nuanced course that sounds really boring, or I can go save a baby off the edge of a cliff, you know, <laughs> and feel like Indiana Jones or something. Um, and so I think there's always going to be, unfortunately, a market for people who want that experience and they want that pat on the back and they want that gold star given to them. Um, so I, I feel like maybe part of, part of what needs to happen is really just changing the industry and, and bottoming that out, or just having a bit more regulation on what, what people are allowed to do. Yeah. I don't have a lot of faith for regulation as a whole <laughs> to do that. I, think, some... I think you got to start, I think you got to start something. I think you got to build, <laughs> build. That's the next chapter here. Uh, yeah. It's because... possible. There is some precedent though. Like um, Australia, there's a lot of people from Australia, young people going to, um, Cambodia in particular for volunteering in orphanages. And um, the Australian government had actually banned young people going abroad to volunteer in orphanages. I don't know exactly how they enforce it, but I do know that it became a, a point of contention because a lot of these volunteers would go spend, you know, two weeks or a month with a child. And um, also something I learned that's kind of crazy is that about 80% of quote unquote orphans are not actually orphans, that they have at least one living caretaker. Um, many times orphanages are are really, they are just long-term big institutions that are almost akin to like a boarding school for some people that they send their children there. Um, it's a bit of a money-making scheme as well. Um, I also learned that in Nepal, um, about something like 90 plus percent of of orphanages are on popular hiker routes. So it's like, you can see that the industry is very much geared towards tourists. Um, but Australia did ban um, people going abroad to work in them because of the negative Im uh, impacts that it would have on the children. Yeah. You also can't get away that this is, you know, travel in general is a massive industry and an industry that, you know, if you're talking about, you know, hiking or climbing the, tallest peaks in the world, there are many groups that are very dependent on that revenue. Uh, and so they have, have to balance that as well. And, you know, I don't think we should be putting orphanages in that economic equation, but, you know, you should yeah. go in with your eyes open as your, I can't believe they call it baby saving, as your baby saving out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, think about the economic um, repercussions of that dollar spent, of that time put there and saying like, what is this incentivized? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think that's true for any travel, like, you know, not even volunteering, but, you know, even leisure travel, just, you know, you're going on a vacation with your friends, like it just, you know, being there's a way to just do it and be a little bit intentional about it, um, about, you know, are you spending money on big international chains? Are there ways that you can plug into the local economy if you want to? Um, are there any, you know, groups that you can support, uh, whether it's just, you know, even buying trinkets from like a women's cooperative, just, you know, just, I think there's just questions that you can ask yourself that you can plug into the local economy in a positive way. Um, I mean, travel is beneficial for so many people. It's shaped, it's shaped my life completely. I'm sure yours as well in many ways. Um, so, you know, I don't want to take that away from people. That also comes through very clearly in the the tone and narrative here. It is not that it is don't do it. It is that do it with your eyes open to your power and privilege and the relationship of listening to um, the local cultures that you enter into. Yeah. As we move toward rapid fire, I'm curious. Um, I have only scratched the surface of the amount of topics and narratives in here. Is there anything else that we should know about either the contents or creation of Tread Brightly? Yeah, it was a absolute labor of love. It is not just me. There's about 14 contributors so we really cover a big range of topics ranging from talking about different essays that touch on identity. Um, one of my favorites is by a friend of mine, uh, Saran Loggins, who is genderqueer and wrote about the experience of traveling while queer um, to talking about environmental issues. Another one of my favorite essays is uh, by someone in Roger Tires who traveled from the UK to China and back by train to avoid traveling by plane and just talks about the, the real severe impact of plane travel to, um, to talking about people with disabilities who are traveling. So really just we cover such a big range of topics. Um, just like with Bright, it was a very important thing for, for me that the book is beautiful, that it's an object that people are excited by and that they are excited to come to. I think that aesthetics matter so much more than we think in terms of how we take in information. And um, and that was, you know, being able to work with so many amazing, amazing photographers and illustrators that really understood that idea also of not just presenting travel as that, like, you know, the way that Condé Nast presents, you know, like beautiful beaches, but also presenting it in a slightly more complicated way um, that, yeah, I felt, I feel really grateful that I was able to do that. The front cover of this is like, it's like a, it looks like just a sea of, I'll describe it, a sea of little uh, beach chairs. Where is this taken? It's a, it's a photo from Italy. It's yeah, it's an incredible photograph because I I love this photograph. I'm, we went through so many different different options for the cover, and this just kind of it. I think it's with all the colors and everything. It's so beautiful. It's also so recognizable as being just this that really popular beach in the summertime, and it kind of just you know makes you sort of wince a little bit. Like you know, do I really want to be there? While at the same time being like like beautifully washed out. So I think it's just like it is both of those things at once. And I only counted two nude people here too. <laughs> yeah. And go figure it's in Italy. <laughs> Actually, I talk about in the forward, how I love those like ugly, beautiful moments of travel. And I think that the cover is exactly that it's ugly, beautiful. <laughs> Let's move on to rapid fire. Yes. Please keep your answers shortish. And here we go. 
What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? I'm not very techy, but I did think of a way I'm using tech that's slightly different, which is uh, I've been using Google Docs on my phone, but I've been connecting it to, I've just been doing it with the, the dictation. And I, in the morning, sometimes just kind of close my eyes and do some writing practice by just talking into my phone. And then it turns up in my Google Docs that I can edit later on during the day. What are some tech issues you're battling with right now? So one of my other projects I'm doing is to create a podcast called uh, Driving Change Made in Africa. And honestly, the tech issues related to podcasting have been have been intense. You know, it's just figuring out the all the microphones over Zoom and everything. So huge props to you for uh, for creating a very seamless experience. Uh, what is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? Honestly, the the book just uh, just launched recently, so I think that thinking about everything related to where this book can go, I hope that it turns into some curriculum and in some international studies programs, and and that you know some students use it as a you know, as a good graduation gift or just you know something that that they can hold on to. So I'm just really excited to see all of the different places this can go and uh, and hopefully impact how people think about showing up in the world. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today. Gosh, so many. Uh, one I will point out is I used to talk very quickly. And I think partially because I grew up in New York and that's just how people talk. But I think there was also a self-esteem issue in that I didn't think that people really wanted to listen to what I had to say. So I would just say it really quickly and I would stop talking. So to not take up so much space. And I've realized over time, the power of speaking slowly and that maybe I do actually have things that people want to hear. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I believe they can. I don't believe many of them want to, uh, that, I've, I've been to a couple of galas um, that uh, there's one gala, I won't name the organization that was at the Cipriani. It was like nicer than almost any wedding I had been to. And they were talking about the disease that they were raising money for being finished by 2025 and that they would all be out of business and everyone, all these very rich people in the audience were cheering. And I'm like, that's not happening. <laughs> If I were to toss you in a hot tub time machine back to the, we'll say, beginning of your founding of Bright Magazine, what advice would you give yourself? I would give myself the advice to start fundraising now. That is one big mistake that I made that I got one really big check at the beginning, which I'm very grateful for, but it made me lazy or not lazy in general, but like lazy to fundraise because it was something that was so uncomfortable to me to ask for money. And so I was like, let me just build an organization. The money will come. The money does not just come. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? I will speak for myself and I will say that I should stop feeling really shy about promoting myself. I think that that's a tendency that I have that I'll think, oh no, I don't want to talk about what I'm doing to my friends because it just seems really shameless. But honestly, whenever I have done it, people have, for the most part, been really excited for me. And your friends want to support you. 
If you had a magical wand to wave across the social impact sector, what would it do? Uh, it would get rid of jargon. It would realize that so many of the problems that the social impact space is trying to solve sit at the bottom or near the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and that we can describe them as such as human problems. How did you get started in the social impact sector? I got started, I was a science nerd in high school and I got really interested in HIV from a science perspective. And once I got to college, I realized what a huge, uh, just what a huge pandemic it was at the time. This was in 2001, 2002 and, uh, and got really involved in activism. Um, so that was my my introduction to the entire social impact space. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the sector? I would give them the advice, I referenced this earlier a little bit, that whatever you're thinking of doing, don't just do it because it's quote unquote good for the world, because from someone else's vantage point, it's a job. And even if you're doing something that's good for the world, it's not going to sustain you unless you actually enjoy the job. So get good, you know, try to try to become an expert in something um, and not just for the sake of doing it for its goodness. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not? The <laughs> sounds very classic considering Asian parents, but uh, they definitely gave me the advice to get a traditional job with a boss. And I absolutely did not heed that. There are definitely moments that I wish I did, but I also feel very lucky that I have forged my own way and have still um, created a career for myself. What is your favorite question to ask people? My favorite question to ask people is what they're inspired by and who they're inspired by. It just always leads to such positive generative conversations. And, uh, and I just, I love, always, I love hearing the answers. It always gives me something to write down and check out later on. Um, I also have people asking people, sorry, one more, it, that uh, if, wherever they're from, like where do they want to travel within their own country? Because there's always more to see. Final hardball for you. How do people find you? How do people help you? Yeah, so I am on um, social media, on uh, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Um, my handle is Sarika, S-A-R-I-K-A, <clears throat> 008, like, because I'm one better than James Bond 007. <laughs> and uh, the biggest thing right now that it, it would mean the world to me if you checked out our book, uh, it's called Tread Brightly Notes on Ethical Travel, and it can be found on our website, treadbrightlybook.com. Thank you so much for putting this together. It hopefully will be something that is timeless. This has and been I using the whole world well podcast. At least if you want to keep learning more about these they go topics and others, world. head on over to wholewhale.com slash university. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. This us. has been so much Thanks fun. as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 